From Boomers to Millennials is a modern U.S. history podcast, providing a fresh look at the historic events that shaped current generations from 1946 to the present. Welcome to 1954, a.k.a. Episode 9, Pulling Strings Around the World. This globe-trotting episode will consider President Dwight D. Eisenhower's agenda with a particular focus on his administration's unique approach to foreign policy. We begin in an unlikely spot, on the other side of the world from the United States, in New Zealand, then a backwater outpost of a declining British Empire. There, a beekeeper's son and World War II veteran named Edmund Hillary was planning in early 1953 to depart on a mission to go where no humans had been before. He flew to Nepal, and at the foot of the Himalayan mountains he met his climbing partner, a Tibetan-born Sherpa named Tenzing Norgay. In May, the two of them proceeded to successfully summit the tallest mountain in the world, Mount Everest, a feat no one had previously achieved while living to tell the tale. As a result, Hillary would be knighted by the British Queen, and Tenzing Norgay would become a celebrated Nepalese national hero. Hillary's and Norgay's expedition to Mount Everest was one of the final achievements of an international project of worldwide discovery that had been going on for hundreds of years, as explorers traveled to every corner of the once mysterious globe, filling in all the blank spots on the map. Just 500 years earlier, the old world had been ignorant of many corners of the Earth, and were unaware even of the existence of the Americas. But by the 1950s, the map had been fully filled in, and even the most inhospitable places had been reached by enterprising humans. The North Pole in 1909, the South Pole in 1911, and now the very roof of the world in 1953. While many efforts were motivated by genuine scientific curiosity, others, unsurprisingly, sought opportunities for profit. Western nations had the technology to exploit the natural resources of far-flung places, something native peoples often lacked. European nations soon engaged in a competition for profit and political control of the world. These efforts were often done with little consideration of local people's well-being or their desire for self-determination. While Sir Edmund Hillary was a generous man who raised money to build schools and hospitals in Nepal after his conquest of Everest, most past representatives of the British Empire in Asia had not been so humanitarian. The British ruthlessly gained control of colonies in every corner of the world, to the point that the popular phrase during the Victorian era that the sun never sets on the British Empire was no mere exaggeration. However, by the 1950s, the sun finally was setting on the British Empire. Britain was a financially distressed power in decline, irreparably damaged by two world wars. Pressure for decolonization was rising all around the world, forcing not just the British, but also the French, Dutch, and other empires into retreat. The Americans liked to view themselves as anti-colonialists, in theory, if not always in practice, yet they viewed this global destabilization of remote corners of the world as potentially threatening. As we have discussed in past episodes, during the Cold War the U.S. government became obsessed with the potential threat of communism, and it had opposed Marxist aggression even in places like Korea that most Americans had previously known very little about. Republican politicians like Richard Nixon had attacked the Democratic establishment 
for not being aggressive enough about stopping the threat of communism around the world. In the early 1950s, the Republicans had taken power in the White House, and many were eager to prove that they would be tougher against the spread of international communism than their Democratic predecessors had been. When Eisenhower became president and appointed staff to cabinet-level federal offices, two brothers reached remarkable positions of power within the foreign policy establishment. They were John Foster Dulles, appointed as Secretary of State, and Alan Dulles, appointed as Director of the Central Intelligence Agency. Appealing to conservative anti-communists in the Republican Party, both promised to take a more aggressive approach to international communism than the containment policy that had been favored by Truman and the Democrats. Instead, they intended to roll back the gains of global communism, to whatever degree they could get away with without sparking a hot war with the USSR or China, of course. Secretary of State John Foster Dulles was the serious and severe son of a Presbyterian minister, and he viewed the quest to win the Cold War as essentially a religious crusade requiring the forces of Christianity to defeat the threat of godless communism. Historian James T. Patterson describes Ike as relying upon Dulles because he, quote, was a hard worker, knowledgeable, and wholly loyal in trying to carry out the president's goals, close quote. However, according to biographers Walter Isaacson and Evan Thomas, the so-called wise men who had formulated the Truman administration's containment doctrine among them George Kennan, Dean Acheson, and Robert Lovett, viewed John Foster Dulles as a paranoid, unimaginative, and self-righteous man. But they now had no choice but to sit on the sidelines and watch the Dulles brothers move the Eisenhower administration away from their more cautious and pragmatic approach in favor of sometimes heavy-handed attempts to push back against pro-communist forces around the globe. New CIA director Alan Dulles was an extroverted partier, far more worldly than his pious and reserved brother John Foster, but both siblings shared right-wing political views and a conviction that the ends of fighting communism justified unscrupulous means. Alan Dulles's leadership of the CIA would be key, as he authorized the intelligence organization to be aggressive in its efforts to influence the internal politics of various foreign powers. Patterson writes that by 1952, even before Dulles took over the agency, the CIA's budget had risen to $82 million, and it had thousands of employees divided between Washington, D.C. and foreign outposts. Author Tim Weiner argues that the main purpose of the Central Intelligence Agency when it was created had been to collect secret information from foreign countries, so that the USA was not caught off guard by another surprise attack like the one the Japanese had inflicted upon Pearl Harbor back in 1941. However, the agency's ambitions soon extended far beyond mere intelligence gathering. Weiner notes that, quote, Presidents ordered the CIA to change the course of history through covert action, close quote. The CIA had engaged in covert operations attempting to shape political outcomes abroad well before Alan Dulles came to be head of the agency. For example, during the Truman administration, the CIA had been heavily involved in making certain that the Italian Communist Party lost a national election in 1948. Under Dulles, however, the ambition of the CIA 
would grow from influencing upcoming elections to actually overthrowing governments after elections had produced a potentially unfavorable outcome for U.S. interests. According to U.S. foreign policy historian George C. Herring, a military commission led by World War II General James Doolittle concluded that the USA must become more ruthless if it wanted to survive the Cold War. Quote, we must learn to subvert, sabotage, and destroy our enemies by more clever means than those used against us, Doolittle said. Presidential biographer Gene Edward Smith notes that Eisenhower concurred that, quote, the United States was in an apocalyptic struggle with communism, and the normal rules of fair play did not apply, close quote. Certainly, the president knew that the Soviets and their ruthless KGB intelligence organizations did not hesitate to spread disinformation and to intervene in internal politics of nations around the world. The KGB gave the enemies of communism no quarter and offered them no mercy. Faced with a devious Soviet enemy that was fully prepared to foment and support international revolutions in order to further its own interests, Many American officials rationalized actions that otherwise might be considered undemocratic or immoral as being necessary in the name of self-defense and the broader cause of freedom around the world. Critics of the New American Approach, on the other hand, questioned whether obscure left-wing governments constituted the threat to national security that the Cold War hardliners believed they did. Opponents of the newly aggressive U.S. strategy for international relations during the 1950s have argued that even the spread of communism to one or two distant and impoverished countries did not significantly endanger American freedoms. They have also suggested that the U.S. government's overseas interventions sometimes had more to do with protecting private, corporate, and economic interest than with protecting the general American public from the communists. The first of the hotly debated Eisenhower-era covert actions took place in the oil-rich nation of Iran. History professor George C. Herring writes that, quote, Having cobbled together a shaky equilibrium in Europe and East Asia, the Cold War combatants in the mid-1950s shifted to the Third World, where they competed vigorously for the allegiance of nations emerging from colonialism. The Middle East posed especially complex challenges. Throughout the region, revolutionary nationalists struggled to gain full independence and sought to exploit the Cold War to their advantage, close quote. One of these nationalist movements emerged in Iran, which had been a Cold War hotspot ever since Soviet forces continued to occupy that nation after the end of World War II, until finally retreating under heavy Western pressure in April 1946. But over the long term, the foreign influence most resented in Iran in the early 1950s was the British control of the nation's rich petroleum reserves. Herring notes that Iranian nationalists were, quote, long resentful of the Anglo-Iranian oil company's domination of their nation's most valuable resource. In 1951, they voted to take over the giant British corporation, close quote. This alarmed the USA because the staunchly capitalist Americans generally despised nationalization of industry, which involved a national government seizing control of part of its economy by taking over entire industries and pushing out private companies. Although there were public-run utilities at a local or municipal level in many parts of the United States, government takeover of nationwide economic sectors previously controlled by private businesses 
appeared to Americans as a socialistic tactic that might inevitably lead toward communism. U.S. officials also fretted over the fact that Iranian nationalists were targeting major British companies at a time when Great Britain remained a vital economic and geopolitical ally of the United States. Furthermore, the massive U.S. auto industry relied upon consumers being able to afford gasoline, which remained cheap in part because of the free flow of Middle Eastern oil via companies based in friendly powers like Britain. The Iranian government was led at this time by democratically elected Prime Minister Mohammad Mosaddegh, a strong nationalist who Herring describes as, quote, a traditional liberal willing to compromise with local Iranian communists when it suited his needs, close quote. To make matters even worse from the U.S. officials' perspective, Iran shared a border with the USSR, rendering it especially vulnerable to Soviet influence. They worried that Mosaddegh was pretending to be a nationalist when he might secretly be an outright communist loyal to Moscow. Still, according to historian David Farber, in 1952 the cautious Truman administration rejected initial British invitations for the Americans to join forces with them in a conspiracy to politically incapacitate Prime Minister Mosaddegh. However, Herring recalls that during World War II, quote, Dwight Eisenhower had come to appreciate the value of covert operations as an inexpensive means to undermine untrustworthy governments, close quote. Upon becoming president, Ike approved Alan Dulles's plan to let the CIA partner with British intelligence to depose the democratically elected Mosaddegh in order to put the pro-Western Shah, the traditional Persian monarch, back into power. The plan on the ground in Iran was directed by a CIA operative named Kermit Roosevelt, a grandson of Teddy Roosevelt, who had been a progressive president on domestic affairs, but an aggressive nationalist on foreign policy. Kermit Roosevelt shared his granddad's preference for grandiose and risky actions in the name of expanding American power. Lacking military forces or large numbers of personnel, the CIA made the most of the wealthy Americans' greatest potential asset in an impoverished and corrupt third world country, money. Kermit Roosevelt bribed local politicians, generals, and mullahs, or Islamic religious leaders, to criticize Prime Minister Mosaddegh and to cooperate with U.S. plans for a coup. The CIA also hired masses of people to engage in disruptive protests and acts of vandalism, purportedly in the name of Mosaddegh, in hopes of providing a rationale for a crackdown on the political left. In August 1953, pro-Shah Iranian forces, acting under CIA encouragement, arrested Mosaddegh. The Shah then took power and became a close U.S. ally who kept the oil flowing to foreign private corporations. Mosaddegh would spend the rest of his life under house arrest until his death in 1967. Gene Edward Smith notes that, quote, In the coup's aftermath, the United States generously provided emergency financial aid to the Shah of Iran that had been denied to Mosaddegh, close quote. Herring contends that as a result of the successful coup, quote, the U.S. supplanted Britain as the dominant power in a pivotal Cold War nation, and U.S. oil companies got a 40% interest in Iranian petroleum.
However, the short-term American geopolitical and economic victory looked very different from the perspective of the Iranian people. Herring states that it marked, quote, a retreat from at least the semblance of parliamentary government in Iran to what became a brutal dictatorship under the Shah, close quote. Iranian nationalists remembered and resented the U.S. interference in their internal affairs and became paranoid about the power of the CIA to manipulate events in the Middle East. These attitudes contributed to protesters' decision to seize the American embassy 26 years later, which began the hostage crisis that occurred during the Carter administration amidst the anti-Shah Iranian Revolution of 1979. The CIA had now added regime change to its bag of tricks, and it would use this tool again in summer 1954. In the Central American nation of Guatemala, President Jacobo Arbenz had expropriated, with compensation, large amounts of land from the powerful U.S.-based United Fruit Company in order to redistribute it to struggling peasants. This move was popular with the Guatemalan people, but the United Fruit Corporation furiously lobbied the U.S. government to do something about Arbenz's socialistic disruption of private property and free enterprise. Herring writes that, quote, Although the CIA could find no direct ties with Moscow, the Eisenhower administration was already deeply suspicious of Arbenz. When his government took anti-U.S. positions and purchased arms from communist Czechoslovakia, they decided to take action. The CIA spent millions training anti-Arbenz mercenaries to march on the capital of Guatemala City and seize power over the national government. According to the Norwegian historian Old Arne Westad, quote, After President Eisenhower permitted the use of U.S. aircraft in attacking Guatemalan military bases, a faction within the Guatemalan army deposed Arbenz in a bloodless coup. Close quote. Smith argues that the CIA's use of media was important to the coup's success. The agency had jammed the government-run radio station and broadcast its own radio reports that made the modest anti-Arbenz forces sound invincible. President Arbenz fled into exile after the coup, and an American-backed military leader named Castillo Armas became Guatemala's dictator. Throughout his harsh reign, the Guatemalan government remained a loyal ally of the United States. To those who viewed Arbenz as a likely dupe of the communists, the CIA's actions in Guatemala had eliminated a serious threat to U.S. interests in the Western Hemisphere. The United Fruit Company's efforts to persuade the Eisenhower administration to take action against him had been fruitful indeed. The U.S. company had its Guatemalan lands restored to it by Castillo Armas's pro-capitalist regime. However, Herring argues that the long-term consequences of the U.S. intervention were damaging to Guatemala and its Central American neighbors because it, quote, shattered the political center and initiated a cycle of violence that would last for more than four decades, close quote. Castillo Armas would be assassinated by the end of the 1950s, and during the 60s, a brutal Guatemalan civil war broke out that did not completely end until the 1990s. The U.S.-supported coup against Arbenz 
also hurt the Americans' public image within some portions of the populations of Central and South America. In particular, left-leaning groups throughout Latin America increasingly came to view U.S. military and intelligence forces as their mortal enemies, because the Americans had demonstrated their staunch opposition to governments that attempted major economic reforms. In addition to supporting coups in Iran and Guatemala, according to Isaacson and Thomas, the Eisenhower-era CIA also, quote, helped install supposedly pro-Western governments in Egypt in 1954 and Laos in 1959, tried and failed to overthrow the government of Indonesia in 1958, and plotted assassination attempts against Chow Enlai of China and Patrice Lumumba of the Congo, close quote. All of these actions were covert operations that would remain hidden from the American public for decades. Secrecy about ruthless CIA actions protected the USA's image as a bastion of democracy and individual rights. Patterson argues that such actions taken against left-leaning nationalists demonstrated that, quote, key figures in the Eisenhower administration, perceiving the world in black and white, had a dim awareness of the appeal of nationalism and anti-colonialism throughout the world, close quote. The CIA justified its actions by asserting that the Kremlin was pulling the strings behind countless radical reform movements around the globe, but this conclusion may have overstated the capacity of America's Soviet antagonists and understated localized grievances and historical injustices that were motivating populist movements in the Third World. Perhaps the foreign events of the most lasting consequence during 1954 took place in Southeast Asia. Since the end of World War II, the French had been struggling to reimpose their authority in Vietnam after having been driven out during the Japanese occupation. For details, see Episode 2. The forces they were fighting, the Viet Minh, were anti-colonialist, nationalist, and communist in ideology. Because of the red nature of the Vietnamese forces fighting the French, the United States had been providing France with financial assistance and weapons in their struggle to re-establish their authority in the Indochina region. However, all their collective efforts proved insufficient in light of the constant Viet Minh onslaught. Now the French were under siege in their last stronghold, the fortress of Dien Bien Phu. When it became clear that the 12,000 French troops faced imminent defeat, Herring states that, quote, Eisenhower and John Foster Dulles seriously contemplated air and naval intervention, even the use of nuclear weapons, before deciding it wasn't worth the risk. According to Smith, Eisenhower contradicted most members of his National Security Council with his decision not to provide direct U.S. military assistance to save the French from defeat in Southeast Asia. Nevertheless, in April 1954, Ike publicly articulated his hawkish advisor's domino theory that if Vietnam became communist, other countries nearby might also fall to the Reds like a row of dominoes. Then, in May, the Viet Minh completely defeated the French at Dien Bien Phu. The Geneva Peace Accords that followed negotiated the French withdrawal from the region, but the U.S. attempted to ensure that the future of Vietnam would not be complete communist control. 
Herring argues that, under pressure from their Chinese and Soviet patrons, quote, the Viet Minh leaders accepted much less in the way of peace terms than they believed their battlefield success entitled them to, consenting to a Korea-style temporary partition of Vietnam at the 17th parallel and an election in 1956 to unify the country, close quote. The USA increased its involvement in non-communist South Vietnam, essentially replacing the French as the key Western power in the Indochina region. Patterson writes that the CIA also engaged in covert actions in communist North Vietnam, quote, trying to destroy their printing presses and pouring contaminants into the gas tanks of their buses, close quote. When it became clear that the communist Viet Minh were going to win the 1956 elections set to politically reunify the country, the South Vietnamese government refused to let this promised vote occur. Instead, the U.S. propped up the South Vietnamese regime as a permanent non-communist power, while the North Vietnamese state supported a growing communist guerrilla movement in South Vietnam. The stage was now being set for one of the bloodiest proxy conflicts of the Cold War. But there was also a softer and less militaristic side to U.S. participation in the ideological battles of the Cold War, one that relied upon political persuasion that attempted to promote people's aspirations for individual freedoms not possible under communist systems. The Voice of America, or VOA, was a U.S. government-sponsored radio network that broadcast news behind the Iron Curtain that went against the totalitarian Communist Party line. Historian George Herring recounts that the VOA had been created in 1948, quote, under the authority of the State Department as the first U.S. peacetime information program. By 1950, broadcasts from 36 transmitters in 25 languages were estimated to reach 300 million people. Desperate Soviet efforts to jam the airways seemed to confirm the program's success. Close quote. The Voice of America outlasted the Cold War and remains a U.S. government-funded news outlet in far-flung parts of the world. It remains a target for criticism by regimes hostile to the United States. The Russian government designated the VOA as a foreign propaganda agent in 2017. However, back in April 2020, just weeks prior to our recording of this episode, the Trump White House criticized the VOA for not being critical enough of the Chinese government's handling of the COVID-19 pandemic. But we're here to help get your mind off the pandemic, so let's quickly return to 1954. Herring notes in his book From Colony to Superpower that the VOA was just one component among many of the U.S. Cold War overseas propaganda efforts. Another broadcast outlet beaming behind the Iron Curtain was Radio Free Europe, which was ostensibly a private media company, but actually had covert CIA backing. According to Herring, Radio Free Europe, quote, used emigre broadcasters to spread bare-knuckled propaganda, denouncing the evils of Soviet imperialism, mocking communism through satirical skits, and using American popular culture, especially jazz, to subvert Eastern European youth, close quote. The CIA also created the so-called Congress for Cultural Freedom, 
that promoted art exhibits and literary symposia and musical tours around the world to subtly demonstrate the superiority of American capitalist cultural products. Of course, the CIA funding for these efforts was completely secret. Herring writes that the money was essentially laundered through private institutions such as the Ford Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, and the Time Life Magazine Corporation. However, at the same time the CIA was secretly bankrolling creative works that inspired dreams of human freedom among populations in Eastern Europe, paradoxically, the organization also aspired to gain the capacity to control human consciousness. The impetus for this project was reports of North Korean-slash-Chinese torture and psychological manipulation techniques inflicted upon American POWs during the Korean War. The alleged communist capacity to achieve so-called mental brainwashing that could turn their American victims against their own country alarmed many U.S. officials. However, some U.S. intelligence agents secretly aspired to develop this power for themselves. In 1953, CIA Director Alan Dulles authorized Project MKUltra, which journalist Stephen Kinzer calls, quote, history's most systematic search for techniques of mind control, close quote. This included experiments with a new psychedelic drug known as LSD. That's right, long before hippies were experimenting with this hallucinogen, it was being utilized by the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency, an organization with aims about as far from the anti-establishment counterculture as imaginable. According to Kinzer, Project MKUltra's experiments during the 1950s on sometimes unwitting American citizens led to, quote, hundreds of people being tormented and many minds being permanently shattered, close quote. These operations were only revealed to the American public 20 years later, when Idaho Senator Frank Church led a Senate committee in the mid-1970s that investigated and publicized prior abuses by various intelligence agencies during the Cold War era. However, during the 1950s, the U.S. Senate's investigative power was not being used to reveal shady government activities to the U.S. public. Instead, it was being utilized to dig up dirt on any Americans brought under suspicion of disloyalty. As mentioned in Episode 8, Senator Joseph McCarthy continued his communist hunting investigations into executive agencies during the Eisenhower administration. Biographer Jean Edward Smith notes that resentment between the president and the senator was mutual. McCarthy saw Ike as, quote, at best a dupe for sinister forces in the Eastern establishment, while the president viewed McCarthy as, quote, a bully whose anti-communist fervor was simply an effort to attain notoriety, close quote. In 1954, Eisenhower was relieved to see McCarthy's political star finally fall back to earth. Historian James T. Patterson contends that, quote, what brought McCarthy down was his ill-advised attempt to ferret out subversive activities in, of all places, the United States Army, close quote. By this time, McCarthy had brought more prosecutorial brainpower into his fold. The Wisconsin senator was a clever man, known for being a gifted poker player, and his ability to bluff certainly helped him when he falsely insinuated to suspects that he had documented proof of their disloyalty. 
But in order to successfully identify and convict actual suspected communists, which presumably would increase McCarthy's standing and popularity with the U.S. public, his congressional committee began hiring some more sophisticated and talented attorneys to assist him. The most famous of these was Roy Cohn, the privileged son of a New York State Supreme Court justice and a prodigious student who managed to graduate from Columbia Law and pass the bar exam by age 21. Cohn soon proved himself an aggressive prosecutor of communists in New York. He helped persuade the federal criminal justice courts to issue a death sentence for both Julius and Ethel Rosenberg after their espionage-related convictions during the early 1950s. See episode 4 for details about their case. Roy Cohn enthusiastically supported a red-baiting movement that often disproportionately accused Jews and homosexuals, despite his being both Jewish and a closeted gay man himself. Cohn became McCarthy's right-hand man, who helped him investigate, implicate, and intimidate people throughout the U.S. government. Almost everyone feared McCarthy's influence and knew he had become quite politically powerful, even officers in the U.S. military. Cohn managed to use this fear of being tarred by investigations and allegations in order to blackmail Army officers into giving special treatment for an Army private named David Shine, who was Cohn's close friend, also rumored to be his lover. Cohn's securing of special privileges, such as lighter duties and more leave time, for David Shine would eventually be revealed by the Army in retaliation for the intense scrutiny that McCarthy and Cohn were subjecting their organization to. The so-called Army McCarthy hearings went on for over a month and drew large audiences on the growing medium of television. McCarthy had been a master of working the press to publicize his red-baiting crusade, but by this time, the increased media attention began to backfire. In his book Grand Expectations, historian James T. Patterson observes that, quote, Edward R. Murrow, a widely respected investigative reporter, ran a series of programs concerning McCarthy on See It Now, a CBS network production. For the most part, Murrow let McCarthy's bullying words and truculent actions speak for themselves, close quote. But then, at the conclusion of his program, Murrow stated in a legendary monologue, quote, The line between investigating and persecuting is a very fine one, and the junior senator from Wisconsin has stepped over it repeatedly. His primary achievement has been in confusing the public mind as between the internal and external threats of communism. We must not confuse dissent with disloyalty. We must remember always that accusation is not proof and that conviction depends on evidence and due process of law. Close quote. Patterson notes that Murrow's program on the Wisconsin senator, quote, did attract a great deal of attention and critical praise at the time, and it legitimated rising criticism of McCarthy from other media. Close quote. Joseph McCarthy was already a heavy drinker, and as increased negative media coverage grew, his dependency upon alcohol increased. Observers reported that McCarthy's tendency to drink during lunchtime led to shaky performances in afternoon investigative hearings. Patterson reports that, quote, He often slept in his office and showed up looking unkempt and unshaven. On black and white television, he resembled a heavy from central casting, close quote. His attempts to subpoena more and more figures within the Army began to meet with serious resistance. Dwight Eisenhower had privately long resented McCarthy's actions, 
but the president had been hesitant to publicly criticize a man who was popular with the conservative base of his own party. See episode 8. However, Ike was now ready to draw a line. He told Senate Majority Leader William Noland, quote, I will not allow people around me to be subpoenaed, and you might just as well know it now, close quote. He told his defense secretary to withhold sensitive information from McCarthy's committee. In June 1954, public opinion turned against McCarthy for good after his conflict during a televised congressional hearing with Joseph Welch, a special legal counsel defending the United States Army. Welch was soft-spoken and genteel in his mannerisms, but quick-witted and defiant in his rhetoric. Patterson reports that McCarthy, quote, began accusing Welch's law firm of harboring a leftist lawyer named Fred Fisher. Welch then explained that he had earlier removed Fisher from the hearings because Fisher had briefly belonged to the pro-communist National Lawyers Guild, close quote. Smith suggests that despite his membership in this left-wing legal organization while in college, Fisher was by this point a corporate business lawyer and the secretary of a local Young Republicans organization, hardly a dangerous radical. In a private meeting before the hearings, McCarthy told Joseph Welch that he knew about his young colleague Fisher's past association, and Welch insisted that it was immaterial to the matter at hand. McCarthy was supposed to be investigating the Army, not Welch's law firm, after all. McCarthy reluctantly promised not to bring up Fisher's past left-wing affiliation. But during the hearing, McCarthy was angered by Welch's unusual degree of skill in pushing back against Roy Cohn's pointed questions. The Wisconsin senator tried to pin down the Army Legal Council by breaking his word and painting Welch's colleague Fisher as a red. Welch said firmly but sadly, quote, Little did I dream that you could be so cruel as to do an injury to that lad. You have done enough. Have you no sense of decency, sir, at long last? Close quote. At this point, applause broke out in the room where the nationally televised hearing was taking place. Welch was hardly the first witness to try to stand up to McCarthy's grilling, but his televised defiance finally resonated with the public and turned the tide of national opinion. Patterson opines that McCarthy, quote, had destroyed himself on national television. Soon afterward, a Republican senator demanded that the Senate censure McCarthy for his belligerent conduct and his misuse of the congressional investigative power to conduct witch hunts. The GOP's Senate leadership instead opted to approve an investigation of the Wisconsin Republican by a congressional subcommittee. The tables had been turned and now the Senate's most famous investigator was himself being investigated. The Congressional Subcommittee issued a report a few months later finding that McCarthy had indeed engaged in misconduct. It concluded that he had wasted Senate resources on a wild goose chase for alleged communists based upon insufficient evidence. In December 1954, the Senate passed a resolution that condemned the behavior of Senator Joe McCarthy. Patterson reports that, quote, all 44 Democrats voting favored the resolution, as did the one independent, while the 44 Republican senators voting divided evenly, 22 to 22, close quote. McCarthy must have been shocked by how quickly his once ascendant power and fame had crashed back to earth over just a few months during 1954. 
From that point on, the Congress refused to authorize future investigations, and the press largely ignored further allegations from McCarthy. Patterson describes an incident during the 1956 presidential campaign when Vice President Richard Nixon visited Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Quote, Senator McCarthy sidled up to a seat next to him. A Nixon aide asked him to leave, and he did as asked. A reporter then found him weeping. Close quote. Having gone from a national anti-communist hero to a discredited figure among all but a few far-right cranks, McCarthy despaired and sank deeper into his alcoholism. In May 1957, Joe McCarthy died of liver failure. He was just 48 and was still a sitting U.S. senator. McCarthy's sidekick, Roy Cohn, on the other hand, would remain a highly successful attorney in New York for decades afterward. During the 1970s, Cohn's prominent clients included ascendant real estate tycoon Donald Trump, whom he defended against charges of violating the Fair Housing Act. However, Cohn's career in the law came to an abrupt end when he was disbarred for misappropriating client funds during the mid-1980s. Roy Cohn died of complications from AIDS at age 59 soon afterward. During the early 1950s, the political right had grown stronger amid the global battle against communism and the domestic Red Scare. However, after the end of the Korean War abroad and the decline of McCarthyism at home, the nation seemed ready to return toward the political center. Many social programs first established as part of the New Deal remained quite popular, and Congress found it politically profitable to expand them. President Eisenhower went along with this effort, according to Professor James T. Patterson. In 54, Ike signed, quote, a broadening of Social Security. He also sought to extend the minimum wage, which had covered fewer than half the wage workers in the United States. Social welfare expenditures during Eisenhower's presidency rose slowly but steadily as a percentage of GNP, or gross national product, from 7.6% in 1952 to 11.5% when Eisenhower left office in 1961. Close quote. Generally, this broadening of the social safety net was accomplished through the means of expanding existing programs, because a booming economy meant that there was not a major demand for new social programs or major legislative reforms. Despite Eisenhower's efforts to appeal to the political center, the New Deal coalition reasserted itself among the American electorate, and during the 1954 midterm congressional elections, the Democrats obtained modest gains that allowed them to recapture both houses of Congress, which the GOP had previously controlled by a razor-thin margin. Eisenhower biographer Gene Edward Smith calls this Democratic takeover of Congress a blessing in disguise for the president, who had often clashed with GOP congressional leaders. Smith notes that, quote, the Democrats generally supported Ike down the line in foreign affairs, and unlike the Republicans, had little interest in returning to the era of Calvin Coolidge domestically, and were not clamoring to investigate the executive branch. Close quote. In conclusion, despite the sometimes unstable international situation during the mid-50s, U.S. domestic politics, economics, and society were experiencing something of a return to normalcy, after the traumatic years of the Korean War and the Red Scare. In our next full-length episode, focusing upon the year 1955, we will move away from geopolitics, 
to examine the social, cultural, and domestic sphere as we try to understand how everyday life in the 50s shaped the baby boomers' childhoods. From Boomers to Millennials is produced by Aaron Rodgers. Logo designed by Kami Schaefer and Aaron Rodgers. Written and narrated by Logan Rogers. Please subscribe to our podcast rather than downloading individual episodes. You can also donate to our Patreon at patreon.com slash boomer to millennial. Check out our source lists on our Patreon page for information about the sources we rely upon to research our shows. You can also follow us on Instagram at boomers to millennials and on Twitter at boomer underscore two. If you have comments or suggestions about our podcast, please email us at boomer2millennial at outlook.com, two L's, two N's, and millennial. Here at From Boomers to Millennials, we promise to never use mind control brainwashing tactics on our listeners. However, we will use our powers of suggestion to urge you all to stay safe during these uncertain times. We think it's a good suggestion. Anyway, thank you for listening.